Father, standing behind this pulpit, Lord, I, I know full and well that I am unworthy and that I am unable. You are good. You are holy. And You are perfect. And Your grace is sufficient to save us and sustain us. Lord, Your grace is sufficient to speak in spite of my foolishness, in spite of my inadequacies, Lord. And so, God, we ask that right now, even now, Lord, that You might speak through the power of Your Spirit. Holy Spirit, would You use me as an empty vessel to proclaim the truth of Your perfect Word, Lord. God, would You encourage us? Would You challenge us? God, would You convict us where we need to be convicted? Father, pierce us to our very hearts. Make us aware of our sin that we might repent and turn from our failures. That we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That we might be conformed to the image of You, Jesus, our Savior. God, I also pray that You would supernaturally provide comfort through the proclamation of Your Word, of the good news, of the Gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. You are our audience of one. We sit at Your feet, at Your throne, waiting to hear how You might feed us from Your Word this morning. We ask that You would do that, Lord. And we ask these things as humbly as we know how, Father. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to You, our Father in Heaven, our one triune God, it's to You that we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage wherever you are to take that Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew once again. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 17. You can look in a Bible, a bound page filled book Bible, or you can look on your tablet, on your phone. The words will also be up on the screen. You can follow along in that way. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, though, I do encourage you to contact us at the church. Let us know, and we will be more than happy to get a Bible to you by whatever means necessary, because these are the words of Life, And so we will be this morning together in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to read from verse 1 through verse 23. Matthew chapter 17 verses 1 through 23. If you, if you have a Bible but you're unfamiliar of how to get to Matthew, it's the first book of the New Testament. Alright, you're going to take your Bible and cut it in half, sort of. That should put you somewhere in the Psalms as you open it. Alright, then you're going to take half of that towards the back end of the book, and it should put you very close somewhere in the New Testament. So we're in Matthew chapter 17, and we will begin in verse 1. Wherever you are, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word? We will read these 23 verses. After I have read, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Let's look together now. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. But when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could do nothing to heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, well, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We continue this morning in our sermon series, walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And I am aware that even though it is Palm Sunday, we're not in a traditional Palm Sunday Passage. I know that on most Palm Sundays we talk about the triumphal entry. Jesus is now beginning his journey and, and starting and continuing his journey on the way to Jerusalem. And this is the last time that he'll visit Jerusalem here in chapter 17. But we're not quite to where Jesus actually comes in. So we're a little bit before, but I believe very firmly that this passage this morning relates very closely to what we see in the triumphal entry and in the week of Holy Week as the shouts on the triumphal entry, as Jesus is coming in on the colt of a donkey and they, they throw off their coats and lay them down for Jesus to ride into the city on, as they wave the palm branches and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they say these things and pronounce these things over Jesus, it only takes one week for those shouts of praise, for those cries to save us, to turn from praise to cries of crucifixion. When the people will say, crucify him, crucify him, and they will chant and demand that someone else be released in Jesus' stead so that Jesus is forced to the cross. So that all happens in this week, about 2,000-ish years ago. And yet this morning we're looking at this very specific teaching that gives us a specific view into those events. So last week we looked at Peter's confession. He confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And after giving the first prediction of his suffering and his resurrection. So we've seen that again this morning. But the very first time that Jesus ever says that he'll suffer, that he predicts that his death is coming is what we looked at last week. After that first prediction, Peter, remember, completely misses the point. So he declared that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then he said, far be it from you, Jesus. This will never happen to you. And Jesus says and rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. So now in preparation for the impending events of the Holy Week, Jesus takes three specific disciples, and from him taking these three disciples, we learn a lot about Jesus and the way that he tutored or mentored or discipled these men who followed him. And he had an inner circle of these three men, Peter and James and John. 
These three are going to hold high roles of authority and leadership in the early church after Jesus ascends. So there are times where Jesus takes them aside by himself. And this is one of those. They go up a high mountain, we're told. And so there's a lot of argument over what mountain they actually go up. Some people argue that it's Mount Tabor. Some people argue that it's Mount Hermon. Both are plausible, but the honest truth, folks, we just don't know. We're not 100% sure of which mountain they went up, but on their way back to Galilee, they do go up a high mountain. And on that mountain, Jesus is transfigured. It's an incredible word that's used here. The derivative of this Greek word is metamorphosis. So there is a metamorphosis that takes place. This is the same word that Paul uses about what happens on the inside of us At the moment of conversion, when we trust in Jesus, the same Greek word is used for how our insides, we experience a metamorphosis inside. Our complete being is changed and we are transformed. And so in the same way, Jesus is transfigured right before their very eyes. And there is heavy, heavy symbolism in what happens to Jesus on this mountain. He's transfigured in his physical appearance becomes sort of like that of Moses. If you'll remember, as Moses met with with God, with the presence of God in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle, Moses would leave and he began to put a veil over his face because the Shekinah glory of God, all right, the radiant glory of God, Shekinah is just a real fun word to say, but it just means the radiating, brilliant, shining glory of God shone out of Moses' face. It was like Moses' face was not just a flashlight, but like a lighthouse. And you couldn't look directly at his face. And so the people of Israel were scared to look at his face, and that glory was fading the longer he was away from the Spirit of God. And so he veiled his face so that people wouldn't see that. But what happens to Jesus is more than what happened when Moses was in the presence of the Lord. Moses was the one who experienced God hiding him in the cleft of the rock like we just sang about, like the words on the screen just talked about. Moses got to watch God pass before him and see the entrails of God as his robe was still behind him and look upon the back of God himself and the Lord hid him in the cleft of the rock. But even in the midst of that experience, he did not look like Jesus looked when Jesus was transfigured on this mountain. You've got to imagine that his face is bright and shining like the sun. And there is so much glory radiating from him that it's almost like his clothes are a light source in and of themselves. It's like there's tiny little um, electric diodes all over him. They make suits that do this kind of stuff now. And if I'd have had the ability, I probably would have bought one and we could have worn it and it would have been a flashy suit. You know, like the lights are going off and it spells messages across it. I want you to think about a piece of clothing with that kind of projection of light sewn into it. Only it's every piece of Jesus' clothing to the point that they can't look right at Jesus. It's It's blinding. You've just come out of a dark room and the sun is very bright. That's the image that we're given here of what happens to Jesus. And then as Jesus is transfigured, they notice that there's two men that show up and appear and start talking to Jesus. So Peter and James and John are looking. And folks, I have no idea how they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe it was from the conversation. We can speculate. But somehow or another, either God gave them the understanding that that was Moses and Elijah. But you have to remember, it's not like Moses and Elijah had a Facebook profile. It's not like they were on Snapchat or Instagram. They didn't have TikTok videos where they danced to great lyrics. Not everybody knew what they looked like. They didn't even really have portraits painted of them. So to be able to recognize Moses and Elijah was a pretty big deal. So either Jesus says, hey, Moses, how's it going, man? Elijah, glad you could be up here. This is a cool time. I just wanted to show my glory to these three disciples here. Glad you men could make it. Maybe that's what happens. And that's how they know, oh, that's Moses and that's Elijah. Maybe God just puts it in their mind so that they understand that that's Moses and Elijah. But the fact that those two men show up are representative of the law in Moses. God, by the power of his spirit, led Moses to to instruct or to to oversee, to compile, to write out 
the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So Moses represents the sum total of the law and Elijah represents the sum total of the prophets. So these two incredible figures in Israel's history show up in submission to Jesus. One of my favorite things about these two guys showing up is something that my friend Billy Barnes tells me all the time. So, Billy, I don't know if you're on Facebook or if you're on YouTube, but shout out to Billy Barnes. Thanks for reminding me of this all the time, man. So Billy always tells me that Moses did make it to the promised land. And I remember the first time Billy told me this. I said, Billy, man, you're a smart guy, but I think you, you, you've gone off the rocker. There's no, Moses did not make it to the promised land. He climbed up Mount Nebo. He looked over the promised land, and then the Lord took him. And, Mo, and Billy said, yeah, but remember, Pastor, Jesus went up on a high mountain. And when Jesus went up on a high mountain, who showed up there with him in the promised land? Who showed up on that high mountain in the promised land with Jesus? And I said, well, you're right, man, Moses and Elijah. So Moses makes it to the promised land finally in this moment right there with Elijah. So it's Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And the, the, the event is so awe-striking to the apostles that the only person who can muster a word is Peter, because again, we love Peter, but Peter lacks a lot of understanding and is very eager to be the first one to say something. And so Peter says, ha, 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 this, this is awesome, okay? This is great, God. This is amazing, Jesus. So uh, I could build some tents. I could build like a memorial. we got to remember that this happened. I'll build three. I'll build one for, for Moses and one for uh, you and one for uh, Elijah. And, and we'll have three tents up on this mountain. And then everybody that comes to this mountain will remember what happened. And Peter can't even finish talking before the Lord offers him a statement, a confirmation of Jesus and his mission. But also, he interrupts to correct Peter's understanding. You see, by Peter offering to build three tents, to, to offer to build three tabernacles, meant that Peter was putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. I'm going to build three equal monuments. One to you, Moses, one to you, Jesus, and one to you, Elijah. And so in the same way that the cloud would fall on the tent of meeting when Moses would go to speak face to face with the Lord, in the same way that that cloud descended, in the same way that a pillar of cloud led the Israelites through the wilderness, there is a cloud, a bright shining cloud that descends upon them in that mountain. And before Peter can finish offering to build these monuments, God says what he says to Jesus when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. I just, I just think it's incredible, folks, how the Lord aligned these passages to be what we would talk about and what we would preach on. When he laid these things on my heart, I wasn't aware that the Sunday school lesson this morning focused so much on John the Baptist and his role. Jason taught that awesome and did a great job at that. If you haven't watched it, it's on YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel and see where he is teaching about John the Baptist. But after John baptizes Jesus, Jesus comes up out of the water. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. And the Lord speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So he says this again to reinforce to the disciples, This is the Messiah. You guys got to understand, this is the chosen one. This is my son. This is the one who is of the very essence of me, who has been there from before the beginning. My children and I have been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. And so we started with the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. And folks, I just forgot how much I love those books, how incredible they are. And if you're a fan of those books and you remember, there's a point at which Aslan is talking to the witch and the witch is aware of the deep magic. And Aslan tells her, don't quote the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. And the witch isn't aware that Aslan was there from before the beginning. And you get to that next chapter and it talks about the deeper magic from before the beginning. And Aslan symbolizes Christ for us in that book. And that's what God is saying. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was there from before the beginning. He is the Holy One, the Anointed One, who goes and predates everything. He is the One who was promised. But then he adds an extra caveat this time. He says, listen to Him. This is going to be essential for understanding what happens on Palm Sunday. This is going to be essential for understanding how this relates 
to what faith is and what little faith is in the coming verses. God says from His own voice audibly so that Moses and Elijah and Jesus and Peter and James and John can all hear, listen to Jesus. Folks, there's a verse that reinforces this for us today in Romans 10, 17. It says that faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ. Faith is gifted to us and given to us by God through the words of Christ. If we want to have faith, we have to listen to the words of Christ. These are the words of Christ. He has passed them down for us for generations to listen to His words. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And so we would do well to listen to what the Bible has to teach us and show us and tell us what Jesus is speaking to us through this Word. In the same way, the disciples would do well to listen to God's precious, chosen, beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. Well, as we read, they are absolutely, completely, and totally terrified. That's a very normal reaction. We see it all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament. And even when angels show up in the New Testament, people are afraid because they feel like once they have seen God and experienced something this amazing and this miraculous, that they are surely going to die. So they bow their heads and they fall to their faces. And I don't know if they just like bowed and took a knee or if they just flat laid down prostrate before the Lord. But by whatever means, they look away. And as soon as they look away, Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud ascends back up and Jesus walks over and he's just so patient. Jesus is just so kind. He's just so long suffering with these disciples who lack understanding. You see, it's, it's all about understanding in the Gospel of Matthew. And even to this point, Peter still lacks understanding. And so Jesus comes and he just touches him on top of the head to, to kind of, hey guys, back up here, we're okay. Let's, let's head down the mountain. And so they begin their trek down the mountain. And I don't, I don't know how these people have followed Jesus, but it's almost as though all of his disciples, all of the, the followers of Christ, plus the scribes and the Pharisees have cronies and lackeys that are just following Jesus everywhere he goes. So he goes up on this mountain and he obviously left some sort of crowd down at the foot of the mountain. So then when they come down the mountain, there is... Already a crowd that has surrounded them. There's a crowd that is waiting upon them. And they get there to find out that there is a man who has a boy who is suffering greatly from a demon. The disciples, those three disciples now understand. But all the while they've been gaining this understanding as Jesus explains the relationship between Elijah and John the Baptist, maybe even as they're walking down the mountain, they can see the crowds and Jesus is explaining to the disciples what the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi is and how John the Baptist has come. And he gives another one of those statements where the kingdom is here and yet it is still coming. He talks about a time when Elijah will come and that was John the Baptist, but not in a, in a reincarnated way. He gives the disciples the understanding that John the Baptist is a representative of Elijah. Not only has he come, but he will come. You see, Jesus talks in these metaphors and explains that, yes, there is a a significance for today, for right now. But also, Elijah will come again in a future time. And we today are still waiting on Elijah to come and show himself or whoever the representative is, like John the Baptist was, not in a reincarnated fashion, but in a special connection between that person and Elijah. And so Jesus is expounding on all these things. And you have to imagine, while Jesus is giving out all this lofty knowledge, all this in-depth understanding and interpretation of the prophecy, there's disciples, maybe the, maybe the rest of the twelve, and even some of those who followed Jesus everywhere. Because don't forget that in the book of Acts... They're going to pick somebody to replace Judas. And some of the qualifications are people who were with Jesus all the same time that the 12 were with Jesus. So this is probably his, the rest of his 12 disciples, the other nine disciples, all right? But then also this is probably those like Matthias who were so devoted that they were not part of the 12, 
but they were there all the time. And all of these followers are doing their level best to get this demon out of this little boy. Now, does this mean that everybody who has epilepsy has a demon in them? This little boy suffers from seizures. And so all of these disciples are trying to rebuke this demon that has obviously caused him to have epilepsy, to have seizures. Does that mean that every disease is caused by demons? No, that is not what that passage means. But it does mean that there are some illnesses and some sicknesses that have a spiritual component to them. And this is one of those cases that in this particular instance, this young boy has some epileptic episodes who has seizures. These seizures occur in a time where it tries to throw him into a fire or drown him in water. And this father has to watch his son every waking moment so that his son doesn't kill himself at the prompting of this demon. And if you could just imagine some sort of of Benny Hinn-esque type of ceremony going on at the bottom of the mountain. Like, I just envision these disciples chanting and saying things. I just envision this big showy thing going off. Maybe they do the thing where Benny Hinn, you know, he smacks people upside the top of the head and this little boy's right down there and, ho, be healed in the name of Jesus. Maybe they're doing something crazy like that and they're depending almost completely, almost entirely on themselves. They want to prove that they are followers of Jesus by them being able to cast out the demon causing the epilepsy. And so as Jesus is making his way down the mountain with the three other disciples, that inner three circle, explaining to him the nuances, uh, explaining to them the nuances of John the Baptist and Elijah and the connection there and how John the Baptist and Elijah has come and it is coming and there'll be a restoration of all things. They look and they see in the distance all this crazy stuff going on, trying to expel this demon and this, this father won't give up. He won't give up. Look, he, he comes close to Jesus and he says, I brought my boy to your disciples, but they could not heal him. They could not heal my boy. So Jesus, this same prayer that we prayed at the beginning of the service, we see it all over the New Testament. Will you have mercy on my son? And look at Jesus' response. It's notable because he points beyond his disciples' inability to expel the demon. He doesn't address just the disciples. His response is toward the entire generation. How long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? You see, Jesus is long-suffering, but it's very difficult. It's very stressful and tiresome for Jesus to continually explain all the way down the mountain what the nuances are and and show this and give this understanding to the disciples only to get to the foot of the mountain where nobody has any more understanding. Everybody's completely lost and bum-fuzzled and they're confused and they're frazzled. And he says, how long will I be with you? This unbelieving and twisted generation. It indicates that the twistedness, they've become distorted in their evaluation of Jesus. Much like Peter at the top of that mountain. Much like Peter when Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Their understanding was distorted. So Jesus is not just talking about his disciples, but the whole generation lacks belief in the truth of who he is. And they also have a distorted, a twisted, a perverted understanding of what Jesus' mission is. And then Jesus very quickly and easily has mercy on the boy and demonstrates and rebukes the demon. And like always, the demon departs instantly. It is instantaneous. It is immediate. Every time Jesus gives a command, all the forces of darkness respond perfectly. They never, they never rebel against Jesus. Even every demon and dark spirit, as soon as he says, be gone, it's gone. So this is another incident of casting out an evil spirit, and and it heals the boy. Again, not every illness is from an evil spirit. You know, the, the answer for cancer is not to just get some holy water and fling it on people and say, Be gone, demon! Be gone! There are doctors. There's a reason for us to use doctors. But we should also not be so naive as to say that spiritual forces are not involved, and spiritual forces cannot ever cause physical Calamity, because that's what happens 
to this particular boy. So now the crowds have kind of been dispersed and Jesus gets his disciples off by themselves and they privately ask him, Jesus, hey man, what's up? Like we did all that we could to heal this little boy, to cast out that demon. How come we couldn't do it? This reflects another passage in Matthew 11 where a similar thing happens and the disciples are told they have little faith. Now, it's really interesting what Jesus does right here. They have little faith. And then he gives a metaphor that describes even if you have faith that is as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be moved or be cast into the sea, as Mark puts it, and it will do so. It will jump and throw itself into the sea. So the disciples have little faith. Does that mean that it's about the amount of faith? Is this passage, is what Jesus is talking about, the amount, the quantity of our faith? Because the apostles must have, the twelve must have little faith that's even littler, that's even smaller, that's even shorter, that's even less in amount than a mustard seed, right? That's what Jesus is, is telling us, correct? No, Jesus draws this distinction on purpose. He says you have little faith, then uses the metaphor of a mustard seed because it's not about the quantity of your faith. It is the quality of your faith. It's not just about believing something so strongly. It's about believing the right thing, even if you only believe it a little tiny bit. You see what I'm saying? That, that Jesus is not talking about you don't have enough faith or I don't have enough faith. When somebody is diagnosed with cancer or Parkinson's or something that we have no cure for that is a terminal illness and we go and we pray over them and we call together all of the elders and we take oil and we anoint their head and then we pray and we lay hands on them and we say, God, cure this, cast this out of them, be gone this disease, heal them of this cancer and God doesn't then we think immediately, I must not have had enough faith. My faith was too small. My faith was so small, it was smaller even than a mustard seed. Because if I just had enough faith, the same amount of faith as a mustard seed, I could tell mountains to move, and they would. But it's not about the quantity of the faith. Because even if you have a mustard seed of faith, But it is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That faith can do the impossible. That's the lesson that Jesus is teaching us with the analogy of the mustard seed and the mountain. That is a common Jewish proverb that was prevalent in Jesus' day for doing the impossible. What Jesus is saying is that if you believe the right way, if you have the right understanding in your faith, then all you need is a mustard seed. And you can say to that mountain, be thrown into the depths of the sea, and it will. Jesus is saying, if you have faith, that is the right faith, the right quality of faith, even if it's a mustard seed, the amount of it does not matter. It is the quality of it that matters. Essentially, he says to the disciples, your faith is ineffective Because you don't understand who I am and what my mission is. Your faith is ineffective. He's saying little in the sense of ineffective. But effective faith is faith that trusts in Jesus whether the mountain moves or not. Faith that is true depends upon the promises of Jesus. Depends upon what is bedrock about Jesus. It doesn't believe against all odds that God wants me to have a Ferrari. And so I will go to the Ferrari dealership. I will bust the glass because God is going to give me this Ferrari and he's going to make everything okay. So I'm going to bust the glass. I'm going to take the little key fob thing. I'm going to start up the Ferrari and I'm going to drive out of the dealership and I will have my Ferrari and there will be no repercussions because I have faith that that's what God wants for me. You can have all the faith in the world. You can have so much faith that you bust into the dealership, that you steal the car. That's a lot of faith. But your faith is in the wrong thing. So it's not even the same as a mustard seed of the right kind of faith. You can't just have faith that God wants you to have a million dollars and you believe it so strongly that you go rob the bank. 
That's not the right kind of faith. You can't have faith that you believe so strongly that God wants you to be healed that you just don't even go see the doctor. We're told to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Even in the Old Testament, even in the time of Jesus, they bound up wounds with oil and pressed them down and did medical procedures. They sought out medical help. And when all of that was exhausted, these people would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we have nowhere else to turn. And so Jesus, in his mercy and his compassion, would heal them. We have to have enough faith that God can move a spiritual mountain by not healing the incurable disease. As much as we believe that God can move the mountain of healing the incurable disease. Are you tracking with me? God can do just as much for his name and for his glory and for his kingdom by not healing somebody as he can by healing someone. And the kind of faith that causes us to understand in Jesus and trust in him is not the kind of faith that says, God has promised me that I will not get coronavirus. So I'm going to go find everybody that has coronavirus and lick them upon their face And breathe their very breath because God has told me that I will not catch coronavirus. God can do just as much through COVID-19 in the people that he heals and then in the people that he doesn't heal. God can work and move mountains in both cases. And the kind of faith that God calls us to have, the kind of right understanding, the mustard seed size faith, in the right thing, in Jesus, in the right way, causes us to know and to believe. Jesus, you can heal this. And I'm asking you to heal it because you said we could come and ask boldly for anything. And I'm believing you can heal this, but I trust you enough to know it might not be the right answer for you to heal it. So either way, God, I'm asking you to work. I want you to heal. I want you to move. I want you to deliver. But I want you to be glorified. I want your name to grow. I want your kingdom to expand. And if that means that I lose my life, if that means that my loved one loses their life, you do what you need to do, God. But I'm begging you for the healing because I know that you can. That is faith that moves mountains, whether we live or whether we die. Don't miss That this story is preceded by a statement of take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Be willing to give up everything to follow me, says Jesus, then goes up the mountain, then teaches his disciples this. Don't miss that Jesus is saying that's the kind of faith that you have. And even if that faith is only as big as a mustard seed, But you trust Jesus in that way? He can do the impossible. He can bring people to Him that you never thought would come to Him. Through the healing or through not healing. You know, when my mom had that stroke a couple years back, my dad and I were sitting in the emergency room. And he said, Nathan, I just trust God's good. God's good. And I I don't know why. This was very disrespectful at the time. But the Lord just put on my heart and I looked back at my dad and I said, you know what, dad, if mom dies, God's still good. God may show mercy and let my mom live. And he did. And we have enjoyed every moment of her being with us from that time until now. And we will continue to enjoy her until he takes her home. But God was good whether he healed her or whether he didn't. And having faith that trusts God in both circumstances even when it's the size of a mustard seed, is then when you will see God do the impossible through the healing or through not healing. Because, folks, the same way, I didn't understand. And I begged God when my cousin Sam was in the ICU for for weeks. I didn't understand. He, He was only 30 years old at the time. And I had no idea why God was allowing this to happen. But I believe with all of my heart that since that day that God called my cousin Sam home, until now, he has done just as much impossible through that experience as if he had healed Sam and Sam was still alive with us. 
God's going to do the impossible whether we live or whether we die. Whether we live or whether we die, we will be more than conquerors if we are in Christ Jesus. But sometimes that doesn't look like just flippantly telling that mountain, hey, go jump over there in the ocean, why don't you? And expecting it to happen. In the same way, when you misunderstand who Jesus is, when we think that all we've got to do is name it and claim it and it'll happen, and we just declare we're going to be wealthy and healthy and wise and it'll happen, when we have that misunderstanding, it doesn't matter if we believe that more than anything else in all the world, we're still wrong. And that's still not the faith that Jesus is calling us to have. It's like the people on Palm Sunday. The crowds that cried out to Jesus and said, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Come and save us, Lord Jesus. But they were asking Jesus to come and save them and set up His empire that would take over the world and overthrow the Romans and free them from physical oppression. They had no idea. They had no understanding that true faith in Jesus means that even though He dies, He lives. That He's not just overthrowing the Romans, He's overthrowing every spiritual power of darkness, every principality and every dominion, that He will die so that we can live. And the same shouts that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, when that rug was pulled out from under them, and they said, oh, there's not going to be a kingdom. Oh, this is not who you really are. They said, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. Because they didn't understand that Jesus was doing a lot more than setting up a physical kingdom. That's the story of Palm Sunday. And it's the story in your life and in mine. We are subject to falling victim to the same trap as those in Jerusalem crying Hosanna, believing that Jesus is here to do something for us that He's not here to do. We do well to go back to His Word. To listen to the voice of the Father as that cloud cried out and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And He said, Listen to Him. Faith in anything is not good faith. Faith in the only Son of the risen Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. The only Son of God the Father. Faith in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. Faith in His virgin birth. Faith in His perfect life that fulfilled the law. Faith in the fact that we know He is coming back one day to redeem us and to restore us and to make all things good and all things right. That's the kind of faith that can move mountains. Look with me in Hebrews. Look with me in Hebrews. This is what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me in your Bibles if you can or follow on the screen. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is how we listen to Him and have true and right faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's the kind of faith that God places within our hearts. It's a gift. Faith is a gift. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He places a true faith in us. And within us, when we believe, we are transformed the same way that Jesus was transformed on that mountain. Our insides are transformed in that same way. And we begin to hate our sin and move towards the Savior. And we have hope in things that are not yet seen. We have assurance that our hope will not let us down. We have assurance that we are more than conquerors in Him who loved us. That is Christ Jesus. We have hope and assurance and faith that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation. Nothing that is visible or invisible can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, His Son, because we have faith. And if that's not moving mountains, maybe you need to reevaluate what a mountain is in your life. Because God is moving mountains in my life. He's moving mountains in your life that just might not look like the mountains you thought they looked like. Maybe this morning you're looking at Jesus expecting things from Him like that crowd was expecting things from Him. 
Expecting for Jesus to do things he never promised to do. This morning, I want to encourage us to have faith, even the size of a mustard seed. in what Jesus did tell us. In the gospel that was delivered to us. That if we will repent and believe in him and trust in him and him alone for salvation... That it doesn't matter what cancer comes knocking at your door. It doesn't matter if COVID-19 takes your job or takes my children or takes anything else from us. I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether my cousin Sam lives or dies, whether my mother lives or dies, whether I live or die, that my Savior is good and He's still moving mountains. If you will trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone today, He will move mountains in your heart and in your life. They may not be physical, and you may not be able to see them. But when we move to understand who Jesus is, we move from death to life. When we grasp and understand and change our lives because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, then God brings new life to us and causes metamorphosis in the depths of our souls. So this morning, folks, don't believe all those crazy preachers that tell you all you got to do is name it and claim it. Don't believe those people that say, if you just gather around and do the right ritual and do the right ceremony, it didn't work for the disciples when Jesus was alive and well with them. It doesn't work for us today when Jesus is ascended. We follow the Word. The Word does tell us to gather around people and pray. We follow the words of Jesus. But don't depend on some ritual. Don't depend on, I believe it so hard that I'm going to make it happen. Praying and asking God for things is not forcing God's hand. We're not toddlers who lay down in the grocery store until we get what we want. We believe and trust that God's moving mountains even if it doesn't look like it. And above all, we listen to that voice, the voice of God himself in the cloud, who said, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Are we listening to Jesus? Are we listening to him today? Are you listening to Jesus? Are you listening to him today? Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word and the truth that is found in it. Father, we ask that you would help us, Father, and cause us to have faith. And Lord, don't don't cause us to just have a lot of faith that it won't rain tomorrow. Don't cause us to just have a lot of faith that we're going to get a new car. Don't cause us to have tons of false faith. But Lord, even if it's only the size of a mustard seed, cause us, Lord, please, to have even the smallest modicum of true and correct faith. To believe in You. To believe in Your Word. To believe in Your promise. To believe and trust and mold our lives around the understanding that You will not leave us. You will not forsake us. You will not abandon us. That we who love you and are devoted to you will be more than conquerors. That there is nothing in heaven, on earth, under the earth, or throughout all that is visible or invisible that can separate us from the love of you, our God, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. Cause us to have that kind of faith. Lord, even if it's not a lot. Even if we only believe the right thing a little, help us to believe. And understand who you are. What you did promise. And how what you did promise is so much better than what you didn't. God, we pray in faith, with boldness, asking for you to move mountains. God, we know you're working even in the midst of this COVID-19. But God, we pray if it is in your will. God, we have faith that you can. We trust that You will follow Your plan and You will move a mountain. But Lord, we don't know 
what the future holds. So all we know to do is ask, will you please take this disease away? God, will the numbers start today going the other direction? And Lord, we trust that you'll be glorified and honored whether they do or whether they don't. But Lord, we don't have your perspective. So we're asking God, please stop and halt this virus. Make it turn around in its tracks, Lord. God, heal those who are dying in their own ventilators, Father. Be with the doctors, Lord, who are making decisions of who will go and get the care that they need and who will go home and die all over the world. God, help us even amidst this struggle, even amidst this hardship, even amidst the loss of jobs and the tanked economy to have faith that You are good. That Your mercy endures forever. Even when that faith is just a tiny shred or a tiny scratch. Lord, help us have faith and believe in You. Lord, if there's anybody listening in this room or over the internet or wherever that does not know You, God, that doesn't trust You, would You please move on their heart. Move them and push them to their knees, God. That they would pray to You and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against You. And I am in desperate need of Your grace and Your mercy and Your forgiveness. Would You change my heart? Would You transform my insides? Would You adopt me as Your child? That I could follow You the rest of the days of my life. Lord, cause them to devote their lives to You. By the power of Your Spirit, draw people unto Yourself. By whatever means necessary. And Lord, as Bethany Baptist Church, help us by our lives or by our death to always be about your kingdom and its growth and honoring you in all that we say and all that we do. We ask these things, Father, by the power of the Spirit, through our only hope of righteousness, Jesus the Christ. Amen.